I'm Simon Cooper and this is the FT News podcast and I'm here to talk about football in Euro 2016 with the great experts David Winner, Jimmy Burns and Amy Raphael. And I was wondering as we go into the tournament, have English fans finally downsized their expectations to realistic proportions? Have they finally accepted that England is a second-rate football nation and that's okay? David? I think they probably have. We're at the tail end of a very long historical process. If you look back at the... English whinging and having unrealistic expectations, whinging about and having unrealistic expectations about the national team, which are the sort of two polar dysfunctions of English fans' uh, relationship with the team. It starts being a problem in the 1950s. As soon as they've lost to the Hungarians in 53 and 54, the jokes start and they're intimately connected with the decline of British political, military economic power after the war so, so the decline football team becomes a symbol of our decline absolutely and it, it's it's only in the last maybe five years that, that that's begun to ebb so you have all the kind of the private eye jokes about Neesden and at the, op- at the opposite end you have all the kind of tabloid jingoism and both of those were a bit nutty frankly and I think one of the one of the great achievements of Roy Hodgson is that he's he's managed to kind of play down expectations. People are now not jingoistic about the, 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 the English team. I don't see any hysteria about it in contrast to previous tournaments. I think we're getting to a healthy, even keel. At last, uh, a nation achieves psychological health. Amy, how does that play out in Italy, where there's this obsessive 24-hour football conversation and a country that's won four World Cups? What, what's the relationship between fans and team? I think... And I haven't lived in Italy for a while, but it seems, as someone who has spent time in Italy and goes regularly, that there is very low expectation for the Azzurri this year. And but equally, I think you, you it would be hard you'd be hard pushed to find a, an Italian fan who would say that to you because there's such a sense of pride. I, I think the Italian fans are very different to the England fans because of of what they've achieved, I suppose, historically. And I think Conte has has recently said that... The that, manager of The Italy. manager, yeah, has, has said that they're dangerous outsiders. I mean, however outside, you know, however much outsiders they might be, I think they are still dangerous. And I think they could still surprise people. And I think the fans know that. But I think perhaps there seems to be a bit more interest in what's happening in Serie A this year because there's all mm. sorts of small teams coming up and it's a very exciting league, a bit like... The Premier League has, has, you know, not gone according to, to to plan this this season. So, I don't know. We, we, we'll we'll see. Mm-hmm. Jimmy, you had lunch in Madrid last week with the manager of the team that is European champion, Spain, uh, Vincente Del Bosque. How did you find him coping with the kind of nation's expectations? Well, I mean, Vicente, as you know, is a man from Salamanca, which uh, you know, the people from Salamanca are quite austere. They're quite realistic. I call him as a sort of mixture between Sancho and Don Quixote, but he is a sort of... I mean, I talked to him before the World Cup, and quite frankly, he was telling me he didn't expect Spain to win the World Cup. And then we know what happened. Half the nation turned on the team and called them complete betrayals and, and, and mercenaries and all sorts of insults. He's going into this championship again with a sense of austerity, uh, Salamancan austerity, but he can't get away from the fact that it's probably the best team going in, into the tournament, you know. And if if they have a, a repeat performance of the game against Holland in the first game, I mean, he will be toast as indeed the entire 
top squad he's fielding. I don't think that's going to happen this time. I think the fact that they lost the World Cup is actually quite an incentive for them to prove themselves again. And I think the fact that they're defending the championship, the European championship, will certainly be an incentive for the young ones who've come into the squad since uh, since the World Cup. It's a really interesting mixture between experience of the old ones who are staying in there, all the vets. Pique, Ramos. Pique, Ramos, Iniesta, and even Casillas, you know, he'll be playing. And then the youngies, you know, some really exciting people coming in. We'll see what the, what squad he takes. But, I mean, you know, there's some interesting guys. Yeah. One of the sub-themes as Europe is in turmoil and we go into the European Championships is countries are at the risk of splitting up, and those countries include Spain and Britain. I mean, and we might have a Brexit referendum in the middle of the tournament. David, how do you see that playing to the backdrop of Euro 2016 with three teams from the British Isles, plus Ireland, which British fans always consider one of their own, going there? The, the fact that Britain has five teams, if you, if you count the Republic of Ireland, which the Republic of Ireland... Would not. <laughs> certainly would not, but we would. That's a, a post-imperial hangover, I guess. The reason that we have the, all those teams is because at the, at the very birth of international football in the late 19th century, those were the only teams around. All the others were Johnny-come-latelys, you know. So it, it's, it's enshrined, it's part of football history, and it's enshrined in the rule-making bodies at FIFA and, uh, and so on. I think the separateness, the separate identity of Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, who are not the only one of the, inverted commas, home, count, home countries not, not playing in France... The fact that these countries have always played each other and until, what, 20 years ago, I suppose, the, the home championships were played at the end of every season and the, the, the dull games were the ones that didn't involve England and Scotland. So those were needle matches and bitter affairs and memorialised and songs would be written about and fans would sing about these tribal football battles. Now there's no needle anymore. There's, there's, no, there's no needle at all, and there's never really been much of a... None at all from the English point of view. And Wales and Northern Ireland would kind of expect to lose to England because, you know, the diff different football populations. So I don't think... I think it, it was always a kind of arena outside of politics. There was a sort of surge of Scottish nationalism in the late, nationalism in the late 70s, which is said to have been derailed by, by Scotland's disastrous performance at the 78 World Cup. And Ali McLeod and all of that. Yes. Um, Ali McLeod saved the union. <laughs> first first Ali McLeod, then Gordon Brown, wasn't it? <laughs> so, so I don't think it'll play very much, frankly. On the other hand, if there's a surge of English nationalism, if England start to do well, as happened in 96, mm. if that happens again, because we hadn't previously seen the flag of St. George as an England fan phenomenon, that happened that year and that has stuck. If that happens, maybe I'd have to revise my opinion and we'd see some political crossover from the football mm. fandom to UKIP or something. Because That's the possible. The would surely run with that, wouldn't they? I would the, think so. The right-leaning I would think so. Last question, the most important one. Who do you want to win, Amy? Italy. Jimmy? Spain, obviously. Uh, you astound me. David? Well, with, I, would, I would normally say Holland. Well, me they're, too, they're, of course. they're terrible, yeah. and they didn't even qualify. <laughs> so, It'd be hard so for I us to pull it off, I, yeah. I, I, I'm pretty neutral, but France or Italy, probably. Okay, and I say Belgium because we Holland supporters in the 80s, when we were rubbish then, we always supported Belgium because Belgium is a kind of mini Holland. They're, so like, they're my second team. 
everybody's second team, but my first <laughs> the, the team. The Belgians <laughs> might disagree about that. <laughs> okay, uh, vive la France, and let's hope that it's a um, nice tournament. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the FT's Alpha Chatterbox podcast feed, where this weekend you'll find an extended conversation between today's guests and an audience at the FT's London offices, covering some of the crossroads ahead for football in terms of its place in society. And now a word from one of our other podcast hosts. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our World Weekly podcast, which is presented by me, Gideon Rachman, the FT's chief foreign policy commentator. Each week I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts, and you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from when... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stays.